take your Bibles out this morning, if you would please, and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 as we close out the series this morning on the book of 2 Corinthians, looking this morning at the topic tried and true, tried and true. Folks, this morning's message will be a little bit different from a typical message, 99.5% of the messages I preach expository messages where you take a book of the Bible and you go passage by passage, chapter by chapter through the Bible. That's how the Bible was written and that's how I believe it was intended to be read and studied and preached. We wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't take 15 or 20 letters that somebody has written to us and read one sentence out of each letter without reading the other parts of the letter. We wouldn't think about doing that. And tragically, that's how many study and read and preach the Bible. They never read through books at a time. And so normally that's what we do on a Sunday morning. Uh, We'll start out that way, but then we'll break off uh, in the second point and we'll do a little more of a topical approach. So a little different style this morning. But would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word beginning in uh, verse 1, uh, uh, excuse me, verse uh, 5 of chapter 13. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may do uh, no wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test. But that you may do what is right though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Father, we thank you so much for your plan with the church to take a group of people redeemed that might be salt and light for you wherever they find themselves. Father, we know that the church is to be made up of the redeemed. And for that reason, I pray that you would help us to understand what Paul is getting at in this passage today. That if we're a part of the redeemed, there ought to be evidence of life, spiritual life. Just like when we're born, there's evidence of physical life. There's vital signs. Well, there's certain vital signs, spiritually speaking, where there is life. Lord, I pray that from time to time that we would 
look deep within ourselves and allow you to search our hearts to make certain there are signs of authenticity. And Lord, as Paul prayed here for the Corinthians, he trusted that there would be, and he prayed that there would be. But if not, he prayed that that one would come to faith in Christ. And I pray the same today. If there's even one here today who concludes they're not converted, Lord, that you would do that work of grace in them. And I pray for the rest that the message would be a great source of encouragement as they affirm these signs of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Folks, we know that as we go through life, we know that life is made up of tests. In school, we have the end-of-year testing. We have the SAT test. We have midterms and finals. And we all live for that day that we get old enough to be able to get our, apply for our driver's license. And so even then, we have to go through a driving test. There are tests that happen all through life. I think of the man who went to the doctor because he was having some health problems and the doctor after examining the man and and looking at his blood work and looking at the results of all the various tests he had performed, he called the wife back into his office. He said, ma'am, would you sit down? I need to talk to you about your husband a moment. He said, ma'am, your husband is a very sick man, but if you give him this medication and that medication, and if you keep him quiet and relaxed, you keep his blood pressure low, you cook all of his favorite meals and you rub his feet and his back and you keep him still, so that means you're going to need to constantly do everything for him and wait on him. Well, between the rest, the pampering, And the medicines combined, he should recover in time. Well, they got in the car going home and the husband asked his wife, he said, Honey, what did the doctor say to you? She said, Oh, he said you're going to (laughs) die. I want you to listen to some of these answers that actual high schoolers have put on their test. Now I know none of our high schoolers would put this down. They're, they're too smart for these answers. Now maybe some of our deacons would list these answers, but not our high schoolers. One student said, Ancient Egypt was inhabited by mummies and they all wrote in hydraulics. They lived in the uh, Sarah Desert and they traveled by Camelot. Another put, Moses led the Hebrew slaves to the Red Sea where they made unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is bread made without any ingredients. Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments and he died before he ever reached Canada. 
Another said the Greeks were highly, not cultured people, but sculptured people. Without them, we wouldn't have history. The Greeks also had myths. A myth is a female moth. And Sir Francis Drake not circumnavigated the globe, but rather circumcised the whole world with a hundred-foot clipper. (laughs) One more. Socrates was a famous Greek teacher who went around giving people advice. He died from an overdose of wedlock. After his death, his career suffered a dramatic decline. (laughs) Now I'd say those students must have failed whatever test they were taking. Well, beginning in this passage in 2 Corinthians 13, Paul turns the table on the Corinthians. The false brethren among the Corinthians had tried to discount everything about the life of Paul. They claimed he wasn't flashy enough. He wasn't eloquent enough or sophisticated enough. They felt like he was a rather unimpressive fellow and so they questioned even his apostleship. Now in every way Paul had showed himself, shown himself to be the real deal. He had the right qualifications and the right credentials. He had been called and commissioned as the apostle to the Gentiles and all of the signs of a true apostle were present in his life. And what's more, he had certainly paid the price of a genuine servant of God. He had not done anything for personal gain or personal glory. He had even suffered dearly for being a Christian. He was genuine in every way. Now that they have finished putting his life under the microscope, he wants to turn the tables and he wants them to put their own lives under the microscope. Folks, we don't need to fear looking at authenticity. There's nothing to be feared by examining our faith. From time to time. Now obviously a a preacher or an evangelist doesn't ever want to do anything to try to stir up undue doubt. But from time to time it would do us all well to examine our Christian faith and our Christian walk and sort of do a spiritual checkup. Again, authenticity has nothing to fear. And such an examination may in fact lead to some serious doubts in someone that leads them to the foot of the cross. And so there's great benefit in spiritual checkups from time to time. And that's what Paul's calling for. I want you to see with me first of all from verse 5 an invitation to test the authenticity of faith. Look at what he says there in verse 5. He says examine yourselves and then right at the end of that verse he, he says test yourselves and look right in the middle. What's sandwiched in between? Examine yourselves and test yourselves. Why? To see whether or not you're actually in the faith. 
Now, as they obey this admonition, what is it that will be a passing grade for them? Well, it's the same thing that will be a passing grade for any of us. Do we find that we are indeed in Christ and Christ is in us? Now, let's go over some much-needed background to understand what's happening here. One cannot read 1 and 2 Corinthians without noting that Paul is agonizing over the congregation there. The Corinthians were pretty much Paul's problem child. In 1 Corinthians, he was so disturbed about their rivalry and their jealousy. They were so petty. And in addition to being petty, they were divided over little things. They were divided, for example, over personalities. Some were saying, we're of the Apostle Paul's group. Others were saying, we're of Cephas's group. That's Simon Peter's group. Others were saying, we belong to Apollos' group. And they were divided, little personality cliques going on in the church. They were even taking one another to court and suing one another. They were unusually impressed over the sensational. They, they love things that put either themselves or others in the limelight. They seem to equate the limelight with authenticity. And all the time they had a unique way of looking the other way in the face of sin. On the one hand they could be so divided over petty little issues. And on the other hand they they could look the other way and turn a blind eye to gross immorality that was going on in their congregation. And so it would seem that they were a congregation that had completely missed the mark of being a truly spiritually minded people. Now it's not that Paul believed that all of them were actually lost. They were just carnal Christians. In fact, he said so. And then you get into 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is Paul's most personal letter. And he's appealing to them as their spiritual father because these false teachers have come in preaching another gospel and they want to turn away from the gospel Paul preached to them and they want to deny Paul's apostleship. And so he's defending his apostleship throughout this letter. Now he had proven himself in every way to be true to the gospel. In fact, back in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, he said, But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And now, like all true men of God who are shepherds, he longed for his people to become mature in Christ. He wanted them to grow up in Christ. And in this desire to see him grow up, he recognizes the fact that some of them, certainly not all of them, but some of them may be guilty of the fact that they have never genuinely been converted. Now folks, let's realize that the Lord Jesus cautioned us that there can be such a thing as counterfeit faith. There can be such a thing as counterfeit faith. You are not a Christian just because you say you are a Christian. 
In fact, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 7. He said, so then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many mighty miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice law. Those are powerful words. Well, Paul desires to turn the tables on the Corinthians and and put the spotlight on them now. Now, I want you to notice that he does not say, I am going to test you. Rather, he says, examine yourselves. In other words, ultimately, we can't be the judge of the authenticity of somebody else's faith. That's between them and God. But what we can encourage people to do is see if the results of conversion, the fruits of conversion are in their lives. Again, we don't see conversion. It's a heavenly transaction, but wherever that heavenly transaction has taken place, there ought to be evidence of it. There ought to be some spiritual vital signs, if you will, that there is actually spiritual life in that individual. Does the Bible have anything to say to us about this? If we go about trying to examine ourselves or test the authenticity of our faith, are are we left to our own opinions? Are we left to our own convictions? And the answer is no. The Word of God actually has some things that we can lay down alongside of our lives and test our faith by, examine ourselves by. And that's what I want you to see secondly. The marks of authenticity to look for in a professing believer's life. Now folks, what is it that a lot of people say today? Popular answers today might be, well, I've walked an aisle. I was seven years old when I responded to the preacher's invitation. And I walked the aisle. And as I walked the aisle, the preacher turned around and introduced me to the congregation and said, congratulations, son, you're saved now. I walked an aisle. I was baptized when I was seven or or nine years old, somebody might say. You know what I I heard... uh, a preacher lately, he said, he said he was listening to a program on the radio, on Christian radio, and it really disturbed him what he heard. Because this Christian radio program, they had a host pastor on that day, and he was so disturbed by the answers that that host, that that pastor was given. He, he said he listened to a, another radio listener call in and, and she said to the host and the, and the guest preacher that day, she said, I'm, I'm having a lot of struggles in my faith. I'm having a lot of doubts in my faith and I don't really know whether or not I'm saved or not. And the guest preacher that day said, well, ma'am, let me ask you a question. Have you been baptized by someone who is a legitimate priest? And she said, yes, I, I have. 
He said, well, ma'am, you, you don't need to worry about your salvation anymore at all. You, you just need to put your heart at rest because if you've been baptized by someone who is a legitimate priest, I can promise you today you're saved. What an unscriptural answer. So disturbing. But that's what a lot of people think. You, you ask them, when were you saved? Oh, I was baptized when I was nine. But when did you begin a relationship to Jesus Christ? I was baptized when I was nine. And, and that's basically all they'll tell you. Now the New Testament never says examine yourselves. Were you baptized or did you walk an aisle? Now yes, both of those things you do because you're saved. But those things in and of themselves do not save. You profess your faith in Christ. I assume that's why you walked an aisle at some point in the past. Because you were coming forward uh, to give a public profession of faith in Christ. That's what baptism is supposed to be. You enter into the baptismal waters. And it is a sign of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and you're saying, you're making a public proclamation that He is my only hope of salvation. And I'm joining my life to His death, burial, and resurrection. That's what we're supposed to be saying but folks those events in and of themselves don't save can we be clear on that this morning just because you and I walked an aisle just because we were baptized in and of themselves those things don't necessarily mean that we were spiritually converted we're commanded to do both. They're both the first steps of obedience that a believer ought to take. But again, they don't save. Well, what can we look for then? If, if walking an aisle or baptism isn't a, isn't a mark of authenticity, what are some things that the Bible uh, does speak about that we can lay down alongside of our lives and examine our hearts by? We're going to talk about three of them this morning. First of all, faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John, if you would please. 1 John chapter 5, and let's begin in verse 1, and then we're going to pick up in verse 6. In 1 John chapter 5, John says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. In verse 6 he says, This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he's not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us 
uh, that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. What's John talking about there? First of all, we need to ask ourselves, have we come to that place in life that we, we look to Christ and Christ alone to save us? Have we placed our faith in Jesus Christ? That's the first question, very obvious question. You remember what was going on with the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul said, I fear for you. I fear that like Eve was deceived in the garden by the serpent, so some of you have been deceived. He went on to say there, he said, because if somebody comes to you preaching another gospel, you're all too ready to throw open your arms and receive them and believe whatever message they preach, even though it's no gospel at all. Paul was genuinely concerned had they even had some of them even placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Folks, the Bible is very clear on the fact that it matters what you believe. We hear today that it does not matter what you believe. Just kind of choose your own way and be true to it and be sincere to it. Just be sincere in whatever you believe. That's not what the Bible says. It matters what you believe. Do you, do you embrace the gospel? And remember Paul writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 what he said that the gospel was. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, I come to you preaching the good news and that good news is that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and on the third day he was raised to life. That's the good news. Turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 2 a moment. A passage that is, that is very popular uh, in evangelism. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And let's begin reading there in, in verse 1 of Ephesians 2. Powerful passage. Uh, Paul says there, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Folks, the good news is that even though you and I are sinners and we've fallen short of the glory of God... God has sent His Son to die on the cross and He raised Him from the dead. 
1 Peter 3.18 says the just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Let's think about that verse a moment. It would be a great verse to memorize. The just, who is that? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the sinless Son of God. That's who Christ is, the sinless Son of God who came to this earth to to be the sin sacrifice for you and me. We are the unjust. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has put on him, has placed on him the iniquity of us all. The just died for the unjust. That he might bring us to God. And that phrase bring us to God in, in the Greek text it is used of somebody who is a mediator. Somebody who is an introducer. If you go to Washington D.C. tomorrow, you're not going to be able to just walk into the White House and walk into the Oval Office without scheduling an appointment. If you can get one, schedule an appointment and get somebody who can bring you into into the Oval Office to meet the president. There's got to be an introducer. And the Bible says that Jesus is our Savior, our sin sacrifice, who is our introducer to God. He died for our sins that we might have eternal life, that we might have forgiveness, that we might have peace with God and reconciliation with God. And He's the one that gives us that entry before the Father. That's what 1 John 3.18 is saying. Folks, I want to be so clear on that this morning that salvation is only in Jesus Christ. As the apostle said, there is salvation in no other name. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. In salvation, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and he draws one uh, to Christ. He quickens us. He makes us alive, our spirit that was dead. We were dead to God, dead to spiritual things, dead to eternal life. He quickens us, he makes us alive. In other words, salvation is a divine work and a divine gift. The salvation of a soul is the greatest miracle of all. And you know, Nicodemus didn't understand that. There are many today who don't understand it. Nicodemus was not only a teacher in Israel, but he was one of the leading teachers, one of the the chief of all the leaders in Israel. And the Bible says he came to Jesus by night on one occasion. It's it's obvious that God was working on Nicodemus' heart. And, and he was maybe perhaps scared what his contemporaries were going to think about him going to Jesus and asking spiritual questions. And so he goes by night and, and he says, teacher, we know that you have come from God. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is just of the flesh, but that which is born of the spirit uh, it is spirit. You must be born again. 
And folks, we've got to understand that the New Testament is clear uh, about the demand, the, the necessity of the new birth, a spiritual birth. And we can check all the right things on a box. We can walk down a thousand aisles. We can be baptized a dozen times in our life. And our spirit be dead. Have you been quickened? Have you been born again? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone? And has the Holy Spirit done what only He can do in your life? He brings about life, spiritual life, whereas before there was only spiritual death. Again, it's not by church membership. We preach church mem- the importance of church membership. The Bible says that for believers. Believers need to have a church home where they can grow together with other believers. But it's not, it, you don't join a church in order to be saved, but because you are saved. The church is made up of the redeemed. Makes me think of that program Art Linkletter used to have. Kids say the darndest things. He had this little boy on his program uh, on, on one show. And he asked that little boy what his faith was. And that little boy didn't have a clue what he was talking about. He said, what's your religion? The little boy still didn't have a clue what Art Linkletter was talking about. He said, son, what church do you go to? And the little boy thought a minute and he said, I'm not sure. We're either Catholics or prostitutes. Well, being Catholic or Protestant won't save you. Again, church membership is for the redeemed. It's not for the lost. You join a church not to get saved, but because you are saved and you're identifying with other fellow believers to be the body of Christ in that location where God works as a witness to the community. The Bible is clear there are none who are good enough because we've all sinned. If we break the law of God even at one point, we're guilty of sinning against the whole. I don't care how many well-meaning people might have told you something else like that preacher on the radio who told that lady that if she were only baptized by a legitimate priest, then she's saved. If somebody tells you something contrary to the Word of God, if they tell you something contrary to the Word of God, they are mistaken. They're mistaken. Folks, this has got to be the rule of thumb of our faith and practice. What does the Word of God teach us? And the Word of God says that salvation is through Christ alone. So examine yourself. Have you come to that place in your life that you've trusted in who the Bible says Christ is and what he did for you on the cross? You see, if, if I'm speaking to somebody this morning who says, No, Pastor, I, I've, I've, I have never placed my faith in Christ. I've just tried to be good enough or keep all the commands or, or just do other things or hope that if I, if I appear before the judgment seat of God one day and I've got more checks in the good column than the bad column, that he's going to say, welcome in, my son. If you're thinking something like that, you're lost. 
And you need to be saved. But I would assume most, hopefully most could say yes. And looking at marks or evidences of salvation, that's not the only one, but that's the first one. Have I placed my faith in Christ alone for salvation? What's the second mark? Second mark is a change in conduct. What does 2 Corinthians 5.17 say? It says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Have you become new? Has there been a time that you experienced a new orientation to your life? You see, when we trust Christ and He regenerates our soul, we're made alive spiritually, whereas previously we were spiritually dead. Once we were all dead in trespasses and sins, and the Bible says we walked accordingly. And we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Now, as I've already mentioned, being born again means that the Holy Spirit brings spiritual life. Whereas again, before there was spiritual death. And in that condition of death, we did not care about the things of God, nor did we care about sin. We were not the least bit in tune with doing God's will. We had a mind and a life governed by the world and the things of the world. Now, the Bible calls that being fleshly minded or being carnally minded. But in the spiritual birth, we're quickened to God and we're quickened to the things of God. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You see, there are new desires. And with those new desires, there's a new consciousness to sin. A new awareness to sin. Now folks, Christians don't cease to sin. The world's got a huge misunderstanding about that. They think, or at least they think that we think, that we don't sin anymore. That's not it it at all, but when we do sin as a believer now, we're convicted by it. We're aware of it, and God disciplines us. When somebody becomes a Christian, they want to live to please God. They want to live for God. It's something that happens from the inside out. That's the beauty of the new birth, something that only the Holy Spirit can do. It's from the inside out. You see, religion tries to change people from the outside in by saying, do this or do that. And people live under this cloud of religion that they can never quite measure up. Trying to change somebody from the outside in doesn't work. God changes us from the inside out. That's redemption. Christ takes out the heart of stone and gives you a new heart. Does that explain what happened in your life? If you could care less about living for God and pleasing God and finding and doing God's will and the Word of God and the things of God mean absolutely nothing at all to you, then your faith is suspect. 
But if you can remember that period of time in your life when you came to Christ, you had a new heart, a heart for God, that is a mark of conversion. And listen to what John says about that again in in 1 John chapter 1. Uh, John says there in verse 5, he says, This is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you, That God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If, look at that word if. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness. And the tense here is significant. We walk as a way of life. This is is the way we live continually. Uh, We walk in darkness. He says, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. Look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Look at the second part of verse 5. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You see what John's saying there? If you are more than happy to live as you've always lived, If you're more than happy to just sin as a way of life, that it doesn't, that he's saying, then it doesn't matter what you say with your lips. Your life is a testimony against authentic faith. In being born again, you've got a new relationship to God, a new relationship that you didn't have before. Your spirit, your soul has been made alive. And because your your spirit is alive now, in addition to having a new relationship to God, you've got a new relationship to sin. I like the way Dr. Adrian Rogers used to put it. A lost man can leap into sin. A lost man can leap into sin and love it. A saved man stumbles into sin and loathes it. Are you convicted by sin? Does sin bother you? Do you want to keep God's commandments? Do you want to obey God? Do you want to live for the glory of God? That is a mark of sonship. Has your life become new? A third mark of sonship or authenticity. A new love for fellow Christians. Look at 1 John 3.14. John says there, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now here's another area that either testifies against us or for us. Do you love the brethren? Now who are the brethren? Who's he talking about there? 
He's talking about other Christians. The New Testament Christians love to assemble together and fellowship together and break bread together and worship together. They loved one another. As you read those early chapters in the book of Acts, it's, it's hard not to be struck by the love that they had for one another. When they saw one another in need even, what'd they do? They reached out, they prayed for one another, they helped one another, they encouraged one another. It always strikes me a bit odd when I'll be talking to somebody and might get get around to asking them if they're a believer. Oh yeah, preacher, I'm saved. Where do you fellowship with other believers in a church? Oh, I'm saved. I know God, but I don't go to church. I don't like Christians. That's the complete opposite attitude of the early Christians. Book of Acts says they met together, fellowship together, prayed together on a daily basis. They went up to the temple on a daily basis even in worship. You see, at that point, they were still going to the temple. What's your attitude toward Christians? Let's just say that during the week, you find yourself completely at home and most comfortable around unbelievers. Unbelievers who may practice the marks of unbelief. Maybe they're by their language, by their attitude, their actions, just everything about them. They're unbelievers. I mean, you you ask them, they'd even tell you they're not a Christian, they're an unbeliever. If during the week, let's say that that is the group that you're at home among and feel comfortable among, and then comes Sunday and you say, oh man, you know what, my family's going to get mad. If I don't get up and go to church with them, uh, they're going to get mad at me. I don't want to hang out with those people. I don't have anything in common with them. Maybe the preacher will forget his message. We'll, We'll get out in five minutes. I just don't like being around those people. If that's you, bing, 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 some kind of red light ought to go off. Something's wrong. Do you love the brethren? Do you love the brethren? Do you enjoy the companionship and the fellowship of believers in Christ? Those are just some of the ways we can examine ourselves, that that we can do exactly what Paul is talking about here. Now now thirdly, and I'm not going to go through this point extensively, but beginning in verse 7, you come back around to chapter 13, and you'll notice what he prays there. It's a prayer for their progress, and and I want you to notice that what Paul desires for them, he desires for them to pass the test. That's a shepherd's heart. He wants them to pass the test. Regardless of what they think of him, that's that's immaterial. He spent this whole letter defending his apostleship, but in, in the final analysis, what Paul really cares about is the integrity of the gospel. And he wants them to pass the test, but not only pass the test, But he wants them to be restored, or as the word there indicates, he wants them to be found complete and mature. Not only pass the test, 
but pass it with flying colors and go on to growing in their relationship with Christ and be found mature and complete before Him. Now parents, think about that. That's a great way to pray for your kids, right? Just think about this, man. Let's say you have a rebel for a kid. You're not just praying for that kid to get by by the skin of his teeth. What do you pray for? You pray that something happens in his or her heart, a a radical change, and they move on to becoming everything that God wants them to be. You're not just praying for the bare minimum. You want them to move on to maturity in Christ, to completion in Christ. And that's what he prays for them. I want you to, this morning, do exactly, let's, let's just think in terms this week, doing exactly what Paul here is admonishing them to do. We don't need to fear letting God's searchlight hit our own heart. Test yourself. Examine yourself. Are you really in the faith? If you say, yeah, I've, Place my faith in Christ and Christ alone. Yeah, my life was changed. I, maybe you don't remember the exact hour or day. But that's okay, but you, re, you remember that period of time. Yeah, my, boy, I was converted. I, was cha- I, I came alive to the things of God and I was changed. And, and I want to live to please God now. Boy, I love my Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. You know what that becomes? That becomes just a great encouragement to your heart. If those things haven't happened, pray to God that you'd be honest enough to say, God, I don't see any of your footprints on my heart. I don't see any evidence. Would you do a work of redemption, a work of regeneration in my heart? We don't need to fear tests. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the honesty of this passage, what Paul is calling for on the part of the Corinthians to examine themselves before God. Lord, I thank you that in your word, you give us indicators to go by. We don't have to guess or feel or this is my opinion or his opinion. Or her opinion. You give us things in your word. That we can examine our hearts up against. And God I do pray. For the majority of folks here uh, today. That is, if, if they do that this week. That their hearts would be greatly strengthened. And encouraged and blessed. Just as they review. That work of grace you've done in their lives. And Lord, I pray that if somebody honestly says, I I don't see evidence in my heart, Lord, that they would do business with you. That they would accept that as an invitation to be broken before you. Lord, we thank you for your word. It tells us exactly what we need for salvation and maturity. May we heed its commands. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.